Good morning, church. You may be seated. We have indeed assembled as a kingdom of priests to our God and Father, having been joined to our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, um, able to assemble as a temple of the Holy Spirit to offer up sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to him for the one who has offered the one and only sacrifice to atone for our sins. Um, let us now offer up um, another prayer to God in faith that it would ascend like a pleasing incense and an aroma to his throne in heaven. So please unite your hearts to mind and to mine as we go to him together. Holy Father, we offer up heartfelt thanksgiving to you, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, the maker of all things. You, O oh God, have extended your outstretched arm, your mighty hand, and have saved us, your people. You have brought us out of Egypt, out of our bondage, as it were, and we are now bound for the promised land. You have freed us from our Babylonian captivity, O oh God, and a promise to bring us to Mount Zion. O oh Lord, we thank you for Christ, for his preparing a place for us, even at this very moment. Though we cannot see him with our physical eyes, we do seek to behold him this morning with eyes of faith. We thank you for the promise of our inheriting the earth with him, being co-heirs with him, your beloved son. Oh, Father, such things are too wonderful for us, but it has pleased you to bestow such gifts upon us, your elect, your church, and we thank you for that. Oh, God, for this church, this local assembly, we pray for you to pour every blessing upon her from your storehouses in heaven. Please work in us, mature and grow this congregation. May we grow in love, unity, our knowledge of the faith, our affections for one another, our affections for our invisible King who is reigning over us. Oh God, this requires the work of your Holy Spirit. We are not adequate for such things, and so we pray that you would mercifully in your kindness Help us bless this church for another 11 years. Should the Lord tarry for another 100 years, be pleased with the gospel labors of the gathering, O God. We also pray for Emmanuel Baptist Church in Coconut Creek, Florida, O God. Our sister congregation, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to hear from them, to fellowship and sing your praises and to listen to your word together with them at the RBNet General Assembly back in September. We ask that you would make your face to shine upon their church as they are currently engaged in planting another congregation in West Palm Beach, Florida. As they have requested, O oh God, we also lift up before you 
the petition that you would give them resources and unity during this time as they are setting their hands to the plow of seeking for another gospel-preaching church to be in that part of their state. We ask that you would give grace to Pastor Jeff, Pastor Nick, Pastor Paul, and Pastor Robert. Give them wisdom, sustaining grace as they shepherd the flock of God that is among them and that they would be able to do it joyfully and faithfully to fulfill with um, excellence the duties that you have entrusted them with in the pastoral office. Oh God, here in our own state, we lift up our governor to you, Roy Cooper. We pray that you would be gracious towards him, oh God, as well as his wife, Kristen, and their three daughters. Oh Lord, work in our governor that he would lead this state righteously and justly. Have mercy upon him, even at this very hour as he is in Raleigh. We do pray, O oh God, as your people, that you would please open his eyes and cause him to repent of his recent work to protect abortion in our state, that he would see that for the evil that it is and that he would turn from that course. But please grant him grace, mercy to him, to his whole family, the work in him, um, for our good, the good of your people here in North Carolina, and for the spread of the church and the gospel in our state. Father, similarly, we also pray for our brethren and for our friends in the United Kingdom. Many of us have connections in one way or another across the ocean. We pray that righteousness would increase in their country during this season of political and societal transition for them. Much has changed for them in recent weeks and months. We pray you would grant wisdom to King Charles III for their new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, that they would govern much as we have asked for our own governor in a way that is just, righteous, and pleasing to you. Lord, we pray that the church in the United Kingdom would grow and thrive that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon that land, the land where so many wonderful theologians, great men of God came out from, where even our own confession of faith was written, that there would be a spiritual revival over there. Would you perform that work, that you would bring that rain down from heaven upon that parched land in England, Holy Father. Here in our own congregation, Lord, we pray for our sisters Amy and Olivia, Brianna and Tori. We ask that you would give them sweet time together as they are in Greenville, that you would grant them safe travels back to us and to their families, that they would continue to enjoy their time with one another, and that you would give um, wisdom to um, our young sisters as they seek discernment for college decisions, as they have been visiting places like BJU and Anderson, just that you would help them, help them to be at peace, that they would make good decisions, that they would get good counsel, and that you would use this trip for um, temporal and spiritual eternal good in all of their lives. We pray for your kindness, O Lord, upon our pregnant mothers. We again give you thanks for opening up 
the wombs of many of our sisters here in the congregation. We ask that you would sustain Kirsten and Joel and Kaylee. We pray that all of their children would be born healthy, that you would prepare their families to receive these precious new image bearers, that you would protect these mothers from any complications or turmoil during these pregnancies, and that you would smile upon them and their families. We do thank you, O oh God, for the healing that you have brought to little Ezzy, for answering our prayers last week on his behalf. We do pray that you would continue to touch him in a healing way, O oh God, and that he would just continue to feel better and to strengthen no complications in his little lungs from from the sickness that he had, and that you would be merciful to him and to um, the Seats family. And finally, O oh Lord, we petition you with confidence because you have promised us that you would work in us by your spirit as your word is read in our midst. O oh God, we seek to be a people who walk by faith and not by sight, and we know that when the words that proceed from your mouth are proclaimed, when they are faithfully expounded, that your Holy Spirit works in our hearts. We trust in that promise this morning, O oh God. And we ask for your, your help that our minds would not be distracted, that our hearts would be full of affection for our only hope in life and death, Jesus Christ, our King. And all of this, O oh God, we lift up before you in his name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, um, the text that we will be reading this morning is found in Genesis chapter 6. So turn there in your Bibles as we continue our series through this first book of the Bible. Specifically, our sermon will be in verses 4 and 5, but I do want to back up for the sake of context to verse 1. So Genesis chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. Please stand with me as the scripture is read. These are the words of God. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. These are the words of God. You may be seated. The great Christian theologian Augustine, in his book Confessions, wrote these words. 
This is a prayer to God. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. Amen. Many times we in the Reformed tradition will cite those famous words from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that I think are influenced by those words of Augustine, that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We were created to love and worship God. We were made to have religious fellowship with our creator. He is what the heart of man was intended to delight in, to satisfied completely in the greatest good, God himself. The psalmist says to God, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Yet at the fall of man, a great tragedy occurred. The heart of man was corrupted. The fellowship that he had with his creator was destroyed. Therefore, having become enslaved to the passions of sinful flesh, the prophet Jeremiah could say of the fallen human heart that it is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Moses, in today's scripture passage, somberly writes of the human heart in a similar way and says that its every intention is only evil continually. Having brought himself and his children under the curse of sin and misery, Adam doomed the human heart to be, if you'll allow me, broken. Broken because it doesn't seek and love God. It was created for that purpose, but it can't do it any longer. It goes after carnal pleasures and wickedness instead. Pleasures which we Christians know are counterfeit pleasures that bring eternal condemnation rather than blessed life and peace. Hearts which were meant to love God with all their being now by nature hate God, want nothing to do with God. Paul teaches us that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. God observes the sinfulness of humanity in Genesis 6. As they spread upon the earth, humanity is spreading an ungodly dominion, not the righteous dominion that they were intended to. And we have already spoken of the terrible estate of affairs at that time in history. Last week, we looked at the strange account of fallen angels taking human women as brides. This was unnatural, sinful activity. And this week brings us to what seemed to be the offspring of those unions. I imagine that many of you have been looking forward to this sermon, this exposition. Let's read verse 4. We are introduced to the Nephilim. Moses writes, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. 
Who were the Nephilim? Much like the sons of God in my previous sermon, the identity of these mysterious figures is somewhat controversial. Good theologians disagree about this. There are many different interpretations, and there is no denying that this is a hard passage to interpret. And I, as your pastor, in humility, admit to you that the view which I will be presenting this morning is not the only plausible or valid interpretation. However, that being said, I do believe that the most straightforward, the correct interpretation of this text, the most simple way to understand it is that these Nephilim were the offspring of these human women who were talked about earlier in the text and these sons of God, these fallen angels. Men like Hebrew scholar Dr. Michael Brown and others have been helpful to me on that point. But one of the biggest reasons that I come to this conclusion is that in verse 4, Moses tells us that the human women bore children to the sons of God. And notice how it says that they were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the women and angels had intercourse and produced children. So if the Nephilim were not the children of these unions, why even mention that the sons of God had children? Why even mention the Nephilim at all in this context? Now, I think that Moses is identifying the Nephilim as those children that are spoken of here, those children of the fallen angels and the human women. The Israelites probably, the way this is written, the Israelites probably already knew who the Nephilim were, and Moses is telling them here where the Nephilim came from. It's like an origin story almost, but he puts it in this passage almost in passing, this almost just like a parenthetical comment that he moves um, past kind of quickly. Much like last week, it's not the main point of the passage, but it's in there to help us understand how bad the world was during that age before the flood. One interpretive challenge is answering the question, how long after those days were the Nephilim on the earth? We simply aren't sure. Some suggest that their DNA somehow survived aboard the ark and that they existed in the post-flood world for a season. Others suggest that they all died out in the flood and that the mighty giants that we read of later in the Old Testament are just similar to those true pre-flood Nephilim. Even their name is somewhat difficult to understand. If you're using the ESV, the NASB, or another translation like that, you'll see that it's rendered the Nephilim. That word Nephilim is transliterated from Hebrew and means something like the fallen ones. The only other place in the Bible where this word appears is Numbers chapter 13, when the faithless spies are giving their report about the promised land. They say, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim 
the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Now, some men of God have pointed out rightly that this is the bad report from the faithless spies. You know, Joshua and Caleb made no such claim. So it's unclear if there actually were true Nephilim in the land of Canaan, or if that was just a lie because the faithless spies didn't want to go. So they're trying to make it sound as bad as possible. Or if it was an exaggeration, or if it was simply meant to be a metaphor. However, as one of my brother pastors has helpfully pointed out to me, even if the spies' report about Nephilim being in Canaan was false, it still gives us information about what the Nephilim were like. Because there is an understanding here of who these people were and what their characteristics were. They were giants, huge, powerful fighters. And indeed, in Genesis 6, Moses affirms their reputation as mighty warriors. Notice what he says. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So their battle prowess was famed. One commentator suggests that they, quote, live on in lore outside the Bible, unquote. So that's led some to suggest that the mythic heroes of legend and other cultures derive their inspiration from the Nephilim. Heroes like the powerful fighter Achilles in Greek mythology, for instance. But as we consider violent conquerors like the Nephilim, we also consider other words in Scripture directed to and about men like them. Proverbs says, for example, do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. Now, to be sure, there's nothing wrong with esteeming men who fight honorably for just causes in a just war, but that is a different thing from idolizing them or glorying in war or relishing conflict, delighting in it, delighting in the deaths of other human beings. There's also a big difference I think we can all understand between a man who fights to defend and a wicked man who fights to provoke and is on the offense. But fallen men seem to have an affection for, a desire for violence, don't they? Even a thirst for bloodshed in some instances. How many times, how often have we seen that played out in world history? We even see that mindset played out maybe on a, on a smaller scale when people are vindictive with other people or hurl insults, you know, in kind. Taking vengeance into our own hands instead of doing as Jesus commands and turning the other cheek. The Bible doesn't condemn self-defense, but it does condemn, condemn the attitude of seeking out and delighting in conflict. Now, would that we, brothers and sisters, not be the kind of people who seek out or even delight 
in conflict or war or even interpersonal struggles? Would that we be a people who strive for peace with everyone. The people who long for the day when Jesus returns and men beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, when nations shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, we don't know much about the Nephilim. That much is probably clear at this point. But how can we know that the Nephilim specifically were wicked in their conduct and in their being mighty men of war? Well, because the Bible tells us so. In verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We will go on to see that Noah is essentially the only righteous man left. Basically, everyone else on the planet at that time was going after evil. The Puritan Matthew Henry has a great pastoral insight on that point when he says the wickedness of a people is great indeed when noted sinners are men renowned among them. Consider, church, the kinds of men and women who are renowned and esteemed in our culture. Think about the sinful behaviors that are celebrated in American society, the kinds of things that could even make someone famous in our day. It is a sign of the perversity of our nation and of the, how God has handed us over to the hardening of our hearts as a people that we celebrate evil. Church, even the lyrics today of popular songs are examples of gross rebellion against the Lord such that Lizzo can release a disgusting song about sex and be hailed on podcasts and in newspapers as the next Shakespeare of our generation. Now, brothers and sisters, rebuking that kind of reputation, that kind of renown, well, that can be kind of easy for those of us in the household of faith. And such things in the culture, renowned like that, they should be decried by us. But it can get a little more uncomfortable when we start thinking about our own reputations and what we are known for. What is your reputation in your community? At work, what's your reputation in the church? What is your reputation in your family? We as Christians are called to live in such a way that our faith is evident in the sight of men. I will show you my faith by my works, James says. Such that, for example, even pagans could want to do business with us as believers because we have a reputation for honesty and integrity. People should see that we believers are different from the lost world, and we are commanded to be ready to tell them why that is when they ask us, because we have the hope of glory in our hearts, because Christ saved us. 
So I ask you, brothers and sisters, are you renowned as being kind and gentle, meek and compassionate? Or do people think of you as being arrogant or rude? Do people associate with your, your name with vulgarity? Do people think of you as being mean or even violent like the Nephilim were renowned for? Now, it's true that Christ says, woe to you when I'll speak well of you. But he's speaking about being mocked and persecuted for truth and righteous behavior and conduct. He's not giving us license, beloved, to be jerks. Reputation does matter. There is a reason why church elders are called to be above reproach. That we are commanded to be well thought of by outsiders. There is a reason why in our church covenant, we vow to not needlessly expose the infirmities of others. There's a reason why Paul commands us not to bite and devour one another. Such things like slander are toxic. Tools of Satan used to destroy individual Christians, to destroy local churches. That being said, brothers and sisters, in your own life, when you take inventory, is your reputation truly a good one, one befitting a Christian? Jesus teaches us to let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and not give you glory. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the renown that we desire, not for our own sake, for God's sake, for Christ's sake, for the gospel's sake, for our witnesses' sake. Yet we aren't naive. We also recognize that the reputation and renown that we receive as Christians can lead to us being mocked and marginalized. And while that can be really hard to deal with in the moment, especially for you younger saints out here, you must remember that it is a blessing to be made fun of for the sake of Christ. You are being Christ's follower when you suffer for his namesake. In that moment, you are taking up your cross and following after him. He endured the same and far worse. Christ says, as an encouragement to us, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so may we pray that it can be said of the gathering church, beloved, that the gathering church is renowned for faithfulness to the word of God. May it be said that the gathering church is renowned for proclaiming the gospel without compromise, a zeal for seeing lost souls saved. May it be said that the gathering church is renowned for the way that we love and care for and look after each other. May it be said that the gathering church is renowned for its dependence upon her king, Jesus Christ. May God work in us, beloved, 
that our reputation in Ash County would be such that Christ and not ourselves would be exalted, that we would be renowned for what he has accomplished in us. Brothers and sisters, such things must be the work of the Spirit of God. For apart from him, we are helpless. Less than helpless, we're dead. No human can do anything pleasing in the sight of God apart from him. Without faith, Hebrews tells us, it is impossible to please God. Apart from God's grace, man's heart, Moses says every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. Those are strong words, but they are biblical words. Psalm 14, David says the exact same thing. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Fallen man can't do good, just like a bad tree can't bear good fruit. It's impossible. But don't unbelievers do good things? You might be asking yourself, well, yes, they do. Unbelievers can be kind and helpful. They can be generous, nice people but not in a way that pleases God. Unbelieving friend, if you are here among us, you might take account of your life. You might think of good things that you have done. You might be generous. You might take care of your mama and daddy. Genuinely good things, but none of that avails anything in the sight of God. Your righteous deeds are as filthy rags to him because you don't offer them up through Christ because you're guilty in your father, Adam. You don't do them for his glory. You must look away from yourself. You must look to another. You must look to and take hold of the shed blood and perfect righteousness of the risen Lord Jesus because absolutely no one can earn their standing before God. Christ teaches us about the heart which is still in rebellion to its creator. He says that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. These are the products which roll off the assembly line of the unbelieving heart. It's the dirty well which the polluted water is drawn up from. These are the sins which God observes in Genesis 6. Adam pridefully shaking his fist in God's face, eating of the forbidden fruit. Cain murdering his brother in cold blood and seeking to hide it. Lamech taking two wives 
and thirsting for vengeance against his adversary, killing people who just strike him. Sexual perversion with the angels and the human women, the Nephilim and their renowned violent acts. God sees it all and he hates it. Oh, how dark indeed is the human heart. But when the light of Jesus Christ shines in that darkness, the darkness can't overcome it. It trembles and it flees. I think the creation account is sort of still fresh in our minds, isn't it? We're still just in Genesis 6. We've been spending a lot of time in these sermons, but it wasn't too far back. So thinking about God creating all things, saying, let there be light. Well, Paul draws on that image in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Beloved, God saves us and he transforms us. The sun of righteousness has arisen with healing and its wings and has shined upon us. The creator God has made us new creations. The old has gone away, the new has come. And this is a miraculous act of God. It is not something that we can work up in ourselves. This is the Lord's doing when he looks at the poor, wretched, needy sinner and he says, I will have mercy on that one. I will set my love on that one. I am going to let my light shine on that one. That one is going to glorify me through all eternity because it pleases me to redeem him, to redeem her. Beloved, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Justified by faith alone, accepted upon the basis of Jesus's good works alone, we are able to perform good works that are pleasing to him. The heart of a believer is not sick and desperately wicked because the great physician has applied his healing balm to it. It is transformed. It is new and it is being renewed day by day. It wants to please God. It desires communion with its creator. And I don't think we meditate on that enough, church, that we by faith in Christ, these new hearts being given to us, we can please God. That's huge. That's a beautiful thing. That is a humbling and encouraging thing that God graciously can smile upon our kingdom labors as weak and as faulted as they are in this life. That he can be pleased with us as our father in heaven, as his adopted children down here on earth are delighting in him. 
wanting to please him. Church, as we prepare now to enter a time of prayer and reflection, and as we lift up thanksgiving to God for his great mercy in extending his mighty arm to save us, I'm sure that we all probably can think about friends, family, loved ones who are still dead in sin. We consider how Moses speaks of evil intentions continually coming from fallen man. Now, we can tend to see that very clearly in infamous men of history like Nero Caesar or Adolf Hitler, but sometimes we can't or perhaps don't want to see it in our beloved lost loved ones. Don't we even see that corruption in our own beloved children when they defy us or take something that isn't theirs? That's because of their sinful nature, dear brothers and sisters. And even us regenerate Christians, when we say, drop an F-bomb in the car, even when no one's looking, when we're cut off in traffic, that is a result of our remaining corruption, the old man. My point is this, all sin is displeasing in the sight of God. And that recognition moves us to consider two things. Number one, it encourages us to evangelize the lost. No matter who they are, no matter how nice they might be, and no matter how many good things that they do or how sweet and cute they are in the case of children, all Lost people are objects of God's wrath, beloved. And while all men are not as bad as they could be, it's been said because of God's restraint, all people are as bad off as they could be. All are guilty in Adam and act in accord with that nature until Christ saves them. Remember, dear ones, no one is good all need a savior, so preach the gospel to all. And number two, it encourages us Christians to kill our own sin. We love God, therefore we hate what the God that we love hates. Believers don't have God's wrath upon them, and we thank him for that every day, don't we? for the sweet fellowship that we have with him every day, for the new mercies that we wake up to every morning. But doesn't it grieve us to incur our father's fatherly displeasure? Church, don't abuse grace. We must not excuse our own sins, even the ones that we try to deceive ourselves or Satan lisps in our ear and says, they're not really that bad. It's such a small thing. John Owen famously exhorts us, kill sin or it will be killing you. Avail yourself of the means of grace. Rely upon the Holy Spirit, not upon yourself, and fight 
the good fight. As I conclude, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the words of Augustine, which I quoted at the beginning, that our hearts are indeed restless until they rest in God. That's what our hearts were made to do. That's our fulfillment. That's our identity. That's our purpose. Many of you can probably remember the restlessness of your own heart before Christ gave you rest. Now you love the things that you used to love and you hate the things you used to hate. It's a wonderful thing. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is at work in you. He indwells you and He empowers you. He will bring you across the finish line to the eternal state where you will behold God in his glory forever and ever, glorifying him, enjoying him without end. And you know what else is encouraging this morning? That as we consider how the mighty, renowned Nephilim roamed the earth in the pre-flood days, that Jesus promised us that the meek shall inherit the earth. This broken world we live in now will be transformed. It will be renewed, much like the world of the Nephilim, which was destroyed by water. This present world will go through the cleansing fire when Christ returns, and we shall inherit it with him. And then God will not look upon an earth with evil thoughts and intentions. He will not look upon an earth with evil hearts, but a world in perfect peace and harmony, joyfully subject to its creator. God will have a people through all eternity that he has rescued, a people with righteous hearts resting in him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we, we are grateful that as the scriptures say, that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we praise you that when you looked upon our lowly estate, that you took pity and had mercy upon us. That as we were running away from you with our stony hearts, fulfilling the evil intentions of the desires of our hearts, that you plucked us up from that marathon running towards hell. You gave us new hearts, hearts freed from the slavery that we were in to Satan, to sin. You freed us to love you, to be able to ultimately fulfill our created purpose, to delight in you above all things, all people. You are the source of our life. You are our life, O oh Lord God. 
we pray that you would help us to enjoy in this life the peace that we have with you. We pray that you would help us, oh God, to live lives that are touched every day by that hope that having been freed from the corruption of sin in this life, that in the next life and in the eternal state, that we will see you as you are. We will praise you. That we will magnify your name and that we will be satisfied eternally in you, in your great name, in who you are and what you have done for us, your people. We pray this in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen.